All right, let's take out our Bibles and find Romans chapter 6. Graham did a great job at um, launching us into this chapter two weeks ago as we continue our study in the book of Romans. As he mentioned, this is a a new section really beginning in Romans. And chapter six through eight are a subsection of the book as a whole. They go together, I think. And yet, as we'll learn, they are very much connected and rooted in and springing from Romans one through five. So we don't want to over-separate them from what we have just been learning in the past months on those first five chapters. So chapters 6 through 8 are a new section, but they're flowing naturally from or progressing from the first five chapters. Now what I'll do right now is read, beginning in verse 1, we'll just read to verse 14, I'll pause and pray, and then we'll dive in. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that... Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace." Let's just pause and ask God's blessing on the word preached. Father, now we know that we are diving into not just a book or a letter or some kind of historic document, but we are diving into your very words. And I am to speak as one who speaks the very oracles of God. And so I pray that you would help me now to do that, that you would gift me in these moments to teach from this passage and to explain and exhort and apply. 
And I pray for everyone that hears that you would give them ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to understand what you would want for each one. So we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This is really, believe it or not, a very practical section in Paul's letter. It is a section that will affect, if you apply it anyway, will affect the way you live every day and throughout every day. It's that practical, right down to the very moments of your life. We know our lives are made up of moments of time. And these chapters are so practical that they uh, affect the way you are to act in each moment of your life. It doesn't get any more practical than that. I want to put up on the screen, just in beginning this whole section now, 6 through 8, a few verses from Genesis chapter 4. Remember the account of Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's two sons. And they had each offered offerings to God and Abel's was accepted by God and Cain's was not. And Cain was angry. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. This is really interesting because these two are the first two or among the first of the human beings Uh, who are brought into the world after the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. And their condition is that there is this thing called sin. And the Lord, as he's talking to Cain, is personifying this sin, really making it seem like uh, an animal, uh, a prowling animal looking for something to eat, something to devour, and that this sin is crouching, just waiting to pounce upon Cain. And Cain needed to know that now because they were sinners, that this sin was present and that its desire was to be against Cain and destroy Cain. And so Cain must learn to rule over it. But in chapter 4, verse 8, the very next verse, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And in this picture, you have this, the, the danger of sin that is presented to all human beings now in a fallen world as sinners. The very real presence of sin and its power and its dominion and its destroying effects that from what we see right from the very beginning is sin is nothing to be trifled with and nothing to be taken lightly but something that 
God's people must take very seriously. That they must learn to rule or reign over it and not let it rule and reign over them, you see. Sin is deadly and destructive. Verse 23 of Romans 6 says this, For the wages of sin is death. The very paycheck one receives for sin is that of death, both physical and spiritual. It is deadly and destructive. It has no place in the Christian life to be tolerated. We are not a people who are to become comfortable with it or accepting of it. And we are to be a people, according to Romans 6, who are pursuing holiness and righteousness, the very opposite of sin. And what Paul is teaching in Romans chapter 6 is that that fact did not change with the gospel of grace. That grace is in no way some kind of permission slip now to not worry any longer about sin or its dangerousness or its destructiveness or worry about ruling over it Grace is not somehow now the gospel of grace and the gospel of Christ is not somehow now permission to just live in sin. Paul needs to confront and correct that way of thinking right away because it was a problem then among Christians and it's a problem now among Christians. They have very serious misconceptions of the very word grace. Romans chapter 6 through 8 then is a progression of thought from where Paul has already been in the first five chapters. He's now progressing in his thought and here's how it's working. In the first five chapters, he was talking about justification and our need of righteousness. But now, as he's explained how one is justified by faith alone, apart from works of the law, he's progressing now very naturally into this idea that the fruit of justification in someone's life, like true justification, will be sanctification. And then by the time you get to chapter 8, what you'll see is the progression goes like this. Justification to sanctification to finally and fully glorification. That's what we read earlier in 1 John chapter 3 where John says we don't quite know as the children of God what we're going to be. We have 
few concepts here and there of the resurrected body and that, but what glorification finally and fully will be, we do not yet know until we see Jesus and then we're going to be like him. See, that's glorification. Anyone who has justification will also have sanctification and one day will have glorification. So that's why I'm saying this is, there is a transition here in Romans, but we can't make too hard and fast of a transition as though we said, okay, we talked about justification over here. Okay, we're done with that now. Let's move on now to sanctification as though these two things aren't connected because they are. Justification, true justification, will result in the pursuit of holiness. This is what Paul is teaching. Now these three terms, let me just pause and explain these terms just for a minute. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. These are biblical terms, meaning they come from the Bible. And friends, this is not the meat of the word necessarily. This is not like the hard stuff. These concepts that we're talking about justification, sanctification, and glorification. These are basics. These are Christianity 101. This isn't something you learn, you know, 20 years into your Christian experience and say, wow, this is the really deep stuff. These are the basics. As Paul just unfolds, the very basic fundamentals of the Christian faith to the Roman church. He goes from justification to sanctification to glorification. These are all things that everyone in here should know. You don't go, oh, well, that's theology and that's, wow, that's really out there. No, this is all biblical language at just a surface reading of the Bible. It's all there. He's used the word over and over again, justification. He uses the word in chapter 6, sanctification. He uses the word in chapter 8, glorification. These are biblical words. These aren't just theological concepts for some seminary professor somewhere to think about and write about. These are things that the apostle Paul assumed everyone in the church that showed up to Rome would have known or understood or should have known. You know, we say that the Bible is breathed out by God. And what we must assume by that is that God is not in the business of wasting his breath. So what he has said, he wants you to know. And what he has said, he thinks that all of his people can know. And should know. Could you define these terms to any degree? Justification, sanctification, and glorification. Okay? If you can't, it's as simple as just, well, listening now, looking it up. And so you know, right? Justification, of course, we have talked about so much. So I don't stay much in this, but that's what he's been dealing with in the first five chapters. Justification is the act of God. So it's something God does. God justifies. 
You see? God and God alone justifies. So it's an act of God in which, by which he declares a sinner righteous. He looks at that sinner and declares him righteous. As a matter of fact, in Romans 4, what did Paul say? He justifies the ungodly. So here's an unrighteous, ungodly sinner standing before God, and God declares him righteous. Well, how does he do that? Does he just say, well, let's pretend he's righteous? Or is God making things up or creating his own truth? He's declaring righteous based upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is his son incarnate who lived righteously, obeyed God, went to the cross, died for sins, rose again so that any ungodly person that knows they need righteousness and knows they need to be right with God wouldn't start trying to be real good so that God will look at them and declare them righteous. Look how good I've been, God. No, they would look to Jesus Christ in faith. And when they do that, when they do that, the moment they do that, they're enabled by the Spirit to see Jesus Christ as their Savior. They trust in Him, and God declares them righteous then. Which means, remember, you had two things to that. You had the forgiveness of sin because Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And you had Christ's righteousness credited to your account. We talked about it like a bank account. When you approach God, you needed a certain amount of money, right? A certain amount of righteousness to get into heaven. So most people just try to start working real hard and getting money to put in there their righteous deeds. Problem is, every time they sin, it deducts from that righteousness account all their sins previously, left them in debt, a debt they could never pay. But when God justifies a sinner, he declares them righteous and he fills that account with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It can never be subtracted from and it never needs to be added to. It's always completely full. You have enough righteousness, a perfect righteousness, a spotless righteousness, enough to get into the presence of God. That's justification. And it's entirely passive. This was Paul's whole point. It's by faith alone, apart from works. You don't do, what do you do to be justified? Nothing. That's the whole point. The trust in Christ, apart from works, you're justified. Now that is different than what we're talking about in sanctification. Now let's look about this word. What is sanctification? Look at chapter 6 and look at verse 19. It pulls up there. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members, that is the members of your body, as slaves to righteousness, leading to, here it is, sanctification. 
Then it shows up again in verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to, here it is again, sanctification and its end, eternal life. Now the word is really only used twice in this chapter, but it's what the whole chapter is about. What is sanctification? That is a word, like I said, we do not use very often. Well, let me show you another translation that I think will help shed light for anybody that doesn't really grasp the concept or understand that word of sanctification. It's from the New International Version. So put that up there, Amber, if you would, Romans 6.19. He said, I'm using a human example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to what? Holiness. And they do the same thing in verse 22. The benefit you reap leads to holiness. The underlying root of the word here for sanctification is just that. It's the word for holy or holiness. So when you're talking about sanctification or pursuing sanctification or growing in sanctification... You could just use the word holiness. As a matter of fact, one might argue the translators of the NIV got it right in the most of our thinking, and they just said, just use the word holiness, and everybody will at least have a general concept of what you're talking about. So when you think about the word justification, you think about the word righteousness. When you think about the word sanctification, you're thinking about the word holiness. That's what we're dealing with. Holiness, being holy, right? The word holy has reference to being set apart. When you set something apart as holy. And in scripture, of course, it is the fact that God being holy, who is completely other and set apart from anything that would be unholy or dark or unrighteous or sinful he is as they cry out in heaven all the time the angels do and sing praise him the holy 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 God right he is utterly other and set apart in holiness and now his people the people whom he saves the people whom he justifies are to be holy as he is holy the idea. So justification then will lead to the pursuit of holiness. Did you know back in chapter 1 and verse 7, in Paul's introduction, he says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, or you could say, all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be holy ones. Because I know even as Eric Junkie in his good devotional yesterday mentioned that for former Catholics, the word saint throws you off because you were taught that only certain members of the community of the body of Christ would achieve this sainthood status by who they were or what they did. And now you would call them saints. And this happens in the Roman Catholic tradition and 
the Orthodox traditions and others, they have certain Christians who, wow, they achieved this status of sainthood, and so we refer to them as saints. But friends, clearly Paul had in mind everybody in Rome who was in that right standing with God through faith are holy ones, positionally set apart as holy people. Holy unto the Lord. We are holy ones. And what Romans 6 then is showing us is that as these holy ones set apart by God, we are to grow and progress and pursue daily, momentary, practical holiness in our lives. We've been declared righteous Now we are to live righteously. We have become holy people by God. Now we are to live holy lives. So, justification is a one-time act, once for all. Sanctification is clearly a process. And the reason I say clearly a process is because of those verses we read Verse 19 and verse 22, where as you're learning to obey and as you're learning more and more to say no to sin and yes to God, it leads to more. It leads to holiness in your life, you see. So a key understanding of if you don't get any, you know, if you're going to zone out or have zoned out, zone into this for a minute. And we'll talk more about it in the next message. But If you're going to pursue holiness this week, it's as simple as this. You're pursuing obedience to God. Whereas you used to disobey, now obey. And as you do that, you grow in your daily, momentary, practical holiness. This is how sanctification is a process. And it, it takes time and it's a process because we don't obey God fully overnight, do we? We don't learn to obey overnight. Isn't it interesting that Jesus said, now go teach my disciples to obey me. Like we have to be taught and trained to obey. So it's a process. But it is a process we are to be pursuing, and it is, the, it is the direct result of true justification. There have been some people in church history and in church present who so want to focus on justification that they never want to talk about sanctification or personal holiness or its necessity. They don't want to talk about obedience. They only want to think about justification. And that is problematic. That's not the way Paul thinks, is it? We see it right here, right? He doesn't think just in terms of justification. He could have written a whole letter about justification. But when he wants to lay out the fullness of the gospel, one of the effects of a true believer in the gospel is sanctification. That's what he's trying to show. Some people view sanctification and holiness and obedience as nice, but not really necessary. 
It's nice if you've got it. And they certainly admire some people who have it. But for them, it's just not necessary. For them, they have Jesus. And that is enough, of course, because they're under grace. So don't come to them with any of your legalistic demands of what they should or shouldn't be doing or what is sin. Don't talk to them about that. I mean, they're under grace. But is that the way Paul presents the gospel of grace? This very chapter is correcting that kind of thinking. The kind of thinking that a person could simply have a faith in Jesus with there being no result in their lives and somehow this way of thinking is that person has true faith. And Paul would say, how could that be? The progression of justification leads right into sanctification, leading right into glorification. It isn't as though God saves people part way. Like in other words, when he saves somebody, he saves one person and says, I'm going to give you all of salvation. Justification, sanctification, glorification. This person over here, I'm just going to give them justification. And maybe glorification, but we won't worry about sanctification. We chuckle because it's ridiculous. But there are Christians who think this way. There are Christians who have taught this. And I fear that in their well-intentioned teaching, I'm sure, have granted an unfounded assurance of salvation to many, many people who were not saved. Jesus said that there will be many when the nations are gathered before him. Many, not a few, not a couple here and there, but many who stand before him in utter shock and horror. They thought they were going to get into the kingdom and they're not. One of the reasons I love 1 John is because he concludes it like this in chapter 5. He says, written these things so that you may know. Which means you have to go back and read what he said and honestly know. Ask the question. The evidences of salvation and justification... Do I see them in my own heart and life? Just the things that I read this morning, right? Very simply, it's not even confusing language or hard to understand. He says anyone who makes a practice of sinning, that is their life, their walk, is one of just rebellion against God and doing what they want to do. That person is not to think or be told that they are on their way to heaven. As a matter of fact, he had to throw in there, let no one deceive you. Because the spirit who breathed that out through John knew there would be many, many teachers who would come out and deceive by saying, no, you're okay. Live any way you want because you're under grace now. 
Do whatever you want to do. Any lifestyle you choose. Because after all, it's all about love in their definition of it. It's all about grace. So just no change necessary. John says, A person born of God cannot keep on sinning. They can't just keep living in perpetual, habitual, unrepentant sin and be okay with it if they're truly born of God. And any understanding or teaching or thought about grace that would teach that they could is in direct conflict with the Bible. And God, God's love is such that he puts in the scriptures many, many passages designed to be warnings, like jarring when you read it, causing you to reflect, is this true of me? Am I truly saved? Have I experience the results of true faith and true justification. The pursuit of holiness then, friends, in chapter 6, as we've seen, is the direct result of justification. It's a direct application of the gospel. There is no legalism in this. That's why he begins with rehearsing. Don't you know, friends? Don't you know? You died with Christ. You're buried with Christ, you're raised with Christ. That's the gospel. So now you live holy lives as a result. You pursue holiness. It's directly from the gospel. It's not like opposed to the gospel. Like the gospel's over here, we talk about that. And then over here, this is legalistic once you start telling people. No, it's all gospel, you see. This whole chapter, this whole passage is rooted in gospel. Matter of fact, true sanctification is always looking to the gospel. That's what we'll find in chapter 6, by the way. And this pursuit of holiness is not optional. Let me put up a verse on the screen that is one of the ones I was referring to that is designed to jar you. It is. Hebrews 12, verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. In other words, there is a holiness that the author was confident everybody would know exactly what he's talking about because he says it's the holiness. He's saying, you know, guys, the holiness that if you don't have it, you're not seeing God. That's a jarring passage. And immediately for a conscientious reader of the Bible, you read that passage and immediately you're asking, do I have the holiness? I don't want to be wrong on this because I want to see the Lord and I want to go into his kingdom and I want to be glorified. Do I have the holiness? We must take Sanctification, holiness in our lives, seriously. I'm going to do something now as we're going to 
start landing the plane, and I want to do something that we haven't done yet, and that is connect Romans to James. I want you to turn to James chapter 2, and we'll close in this passage. But remember what I said, this problem with people saying they're Christians, making professions of faith, but then lives that just are fruitless has been a problem from the very beginning. You can see how it could very easily be a problem just because what do we say? We say things like, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. So if we don't have a proper understanding of that or what true versus false or as James would call it, dead faith is, then we can misapply that, we can misunderstand it or we can teach others to do it. So what does James say here? Verse 14 of chapter 2. And he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but has not, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? So if somebody says, well, I have faith, so yeah, I'm justified, but there's no works of obedience, no fruit of the new birth, as John talks about in 1 John. There's no progression of holiness or pursuit of it, like Romans 6. Is that the kind of faith that saves? You look down at verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, certainly, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Well, I believe in God. Oh, you believe that God is one. You do well. But even the demons believe. They shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? Now, this is Discipleship 101 from James, right? <laughs> you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, in chapter 15 that we took so much time looking at in Romans chapter 4 where he connected it, God made the promise to Abraham. Abraham believed God justified. A handful of chapters later, Isaac, the promised son, had been born. And the Lord tested Abraham. 
And he said, I want you to take your son, your only son Isaac, and I want you to sacrifice him. And the very next verse says that Abraham, essentially this, gathered everything he needed and went to go sacrifice Isaac. He obeyed. And what James is saying is, when he obeyed, it justified his justification. It showed that this is one who has true saving faith. Look at the results. That's what James is saying. He obeys. He does what God says, even when what God commanded him to do in our minds is abhorrent. And yet he steps out to obey God, and he was justified by his works. In other words, you can't have a saving faith that does not result in saving works. Justification leads right into sanctification. And then sanctification leads to glorification. Without that middle one, a person pursuing holiness. Now, without that growing in godliness and holiness, no one without that should have any anticipation that they're going to have glorification. Let me just close by saying this. And this, a lot of this stems out of my own personal experience as a child in church making a profession of faith at eight years old. We need to be very careful with assuring children of salvation based upon a prayer they pray or something they say. Because there are too many sad examples, and I was one of them, of children who say something when they're a child. They pray a prayer as a child. And then over time it shows that that was dead faith because there's no works. There's no result of justification. The reason we got to be careful with assuring is because for one, assurance is in our job. It's the role of the Holy Spirit. And we don't know what that young, impressionable child is believing, trusting in. I grew up hearing about hell. No, I didn't want to go to hell. But I had no concepts, no inner concepts of my own sin, depravity, and need of salvation. So we must be careful with that. We're going to have to pick up where we left off next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being honest with us and clear with us. I pray for everyone in this room who truly knows you, that it would be well with their soul this morning. And for those who don't know you, Lord, we pray that you would rock their world and strike terror into their hearts so that they would turn to Jesus and find true life through true faith in him. We ask this in his name, amen.